from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Well, before I introduce today's guest, I just want to uh, bring you up to date on a little actually disappointing news for me, which is that uh, this first version of Psychoactive will unfortunately come to an end uh, in late January when we complete two seasons. And I have to say, I mean, basically what's happened is that the two key backers of Psychoactive, which is iHeart, and Darren Aronofsky's company, Protozoa, um, you know, have done a, have made a, really made a wonderful investment in this. Uh, and the audience has been growing. The reviews have been fantastic. But unfortunately, and I understand this and empathize with it, the, uh, the, the numbers of listeners is not yet significant enough to justify continuing investment. So we'll likely be taking a break at the end of January and trying to figure out how to bring Psychoactive back in some similar but slightly different form with different backers. So at this point, what I'd like to say to you is that if you've been enjoying the podcast, um, please post your comments. Put them up on, you know, whether it's Apple or Spotify or iHeart or Google, wherever you listen to your podcast. So I hope to keep Psychoactive going into the future. I really love doing it and I've gotten wonderful feedback. Um, but part of its future will depend upon you, the listeners, and how much you can, you know, not just send your positive feedback, but spread the word. Uh, encourage others, peers, friends, students, teachers, whatever, to listen uh, so that we can build this audience as big as possible. Okay, well, that said, let me introduce today's 
guest. He's Professor Neil Carrier. He's a professor of social anthropology at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. And he is one of the really leading experts in the world, both about drugs in Africa and more specifically about a drug called COT, spelled K-H-A-T or Q-A-T. I'm delighted to have him on Psychoactive today. So, Neil, thanks so much for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive. Oh, pleasure, Ethan. And yeah, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. So now I realize that many of you may never have heard of COT. I mean, I've been fascinated by it because I've been studying drugs for many decades. And it doesn't pop up much in the news in the United States. And occasionally you read about a bust by the DEA or local authorities, typically directed at at Somali or Ethiopian immigrant communities living in the United States or maybe at a transshipment that gets caught at a port. Um, But it's got a long and rich history. And I want to discuss with Neil today both not just about COT and its unusual history, but also how thinking about COT in relationship to other drugs like like coffee, like tobacco, like coca, like opium, like uh, even kava. I mean, how we think about these drugs comparatively in terms of their indigenous uses, in terms of their modernization, in terms of international markets and all of that. So, Neil, why don't we just start off, if you could explain to our listeners, what exactly is COT? What does it come from? What does it do? How far back does it does its history go? Start us off with, with answers to those questions. Oh, sure. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, yes, well, uh, basically, cat comes from either a shrub or a tree. Cat comes from the uh, Cateraulis plant, which which can grow as quite a small shrub or can grow into something quite a bit uh, a bit larger, into a full blown tree, uh, depending on on how it's uh, how it is produced and cultivated. Uh, and basically, it is the 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 uh, product that is sold are the young stems and leaves that shoot up from the the main branches of the of the shrub of of the, of the tree. Uh, and these have have stimulating properties, mainly due to some compounds that resemble amphetamine in the, in how they how they work on the on the central uh, nervous system. Those compounds are cathinone and and caffeine. Those are the two key elements. And cathinone is basically a sort of cousin of amphetamine with somewhat similar effects. That's right, and it's quite interesting. I think pharmacologically, there has been quite a quite a bit of work done on all the different types of compounds. So, as you know, with a lot of these plants, including cannabis and the like, people tend to focus on particular compounds, THC or or what have you. Uh, and it's quite similar with cat as well. So, a lot of the focus pharmacologically is on this substance, uh, cavinone. But there are a lot of other compounds within within cat that. Uh, you know, have been researched in, in more or, le- or less detail. But basically, it is these these leaves and stems are consumed by by chewing um, and people build up a wad of cat in their in their cheeks and chew often, often for quite a few hours, at least for, for a time, ki- uh, constantly building up this wad in the in the cheek. So maybe a little bit like uh, like chewing tobacco or, or chewing uh, coca. So mm-hmm. this wad is constantly replenished. And this is what gives uh, releases the the stimulating properties of the of the uh, substance. 
Mm-hmm. So similar in the same way that, say, uh, indigenous peoples of Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, elsewhere will chew the coca leaf and, and slowly a slow drip of cocaine gets released. Or in some cases, people will chew tobacco and the nicotine gets released. Similarly, people will be chewing the uh, the cot and the cathinone and eventually the caffeine will get released. And that's what provides the pleasant feeling, I guess, of, of, of engaging in this. That's right. And I, I think it's key, like the way it's consumed is is quite a key aspect of, of cat, like like with coca and chewing uh, coca, because it is, that, as you put it, uh, a more measured release rather than t- taking a pure compound in, in one go. It's uh, kind of released over the hours of a, of a chewing session, which is a more gentle effect, really, than, than would be, say, taking the isolated cavinone. Uh, a friend of mine actually had a really, really nice way of explaining the or describing the effects of cat as being something that um, if you if you sit down in an armchair and you're not quite comfortable, but then suddenly you just shift your body and you find that place where, you know, your body's completely comfortable. Cat seems to be a little bit like that. It is quite a quite a subtle effect, you know, the the way it mm-hmm. makes you makes you feel. But it but, you know, it is, it is quite a quite a a pleasant uh, substance. And the history, I mean, does this go back millennia? Does it go back a thousand years? Does it have a history similar to coffee or to opium? Or what would you compare it to? And Well, it, it does go back a long time. Uh, I think in records, it's probably about a, a one millennium where we have records, especially in the region of uh, Ethiopia and Yemen. There's a, a lot of early early records, sort of textual records from that kind of uh, region, um, and it is, it's similar to coffee actually. So probably about the about a similar timeline to to coffee. Mm-hmm. And associated, I mean, coffee is associated. You know, part of it is both the frisky goat story of realizing that this thing could wake you up in the morning, and also then beginning to use it in order to help staying awake for the early morning prayers in in Islam. Um, is there something similar? I mean, is 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 cot more associated with Muslims than with Christians or or, or animist or other types of religions? Oh, it it very much is, um, and sometimes there's an explanation given that. Uh, for for Muslim people without uh, with restrictions on alcohol, that something like a cat can kind of fulfil that social social role um, uh, that alcohol does for many for many other societies. So there is that kind of argument, but it it does link with uh, especially um, uh, forms of Islam again, kind of more in the Ethiopian uh, region. There there are links with. Uh, all-night prayer sessions in in Sufi uh, Islam and and in northern Kenya uh, where I've done quite a bit of work, uh, you do get its its consumption associated with things like spirit possession uh, sessions, which do tend to involve um, kind of all-night sessions. So cat, you know, something there is like a functional aspect to it, you know, something that's quite useful for keeping people going in these these kind of religious uh, religious settings. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not psychedelic in the sense of people using uh, peyote or using iboga or things like that, right? People aren't hallucinating the influence of this. They're more getting into a slightly modified state of consciousness. That's right. I mean, it's it's not a a direct psychedelic in that that way. I think, like a lot of these things, and um, the way context plays a role on on how the effects are felt, though, um, y- you know, perhaps in those kind of consumption contexts, um, it it might have a, you know, be able to generate some sorts of altered states, you know, along with like 
the kind of music that would be going on, the drumming, this kind of thing. So context can maybe give it a, a slight um, effect like that. But generally, no, it, it, it is a fairly gentle form of um, amphetamine. Now, Neil, if we look in the, at the current time, I mean, if you look in the countries in the Horn of Africa, as well as in the emigrate communities uh, throughout the world, um, I mean, how many people are probably chewing cot on any one day? I mean, today, are there, are there probably 10 million or 5 million or 25 million people in the world chewing cot? And is it is it over is it overwhelmingly in Yemen and then in Somalia and Kenya? How, how does it break out? To be honest, there there really isn't the the evidence yet to to state with with precision. I think how many um, how many people would be consuming over any one day, but it's certainly consumed over a, a vast area. So all the way from Yemen, like you like you say, all the way actually down to the Eastern Cape in uh, South Africa, Southern Africa, um, you do get cat cat grown wild uh, all the way down that region. So e- even in the Eastern Cape, there's people who do consume it and it's also imported into South Africa from places like uh, like Kenya. And uh, mm-hmm. Madagascar as well, actually, is a, is a place principally with the influence of Yemenis who settled in northern Madagascar uh, centuries ago. Uh, but northern Madagascar as well is another place where, where a, a lo- quite a bit of cat is, is consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other sections of society where it's very, very, very popular, it's become very popular principally, again, for this fun- more functional use by people like truck drivers, uh, people like uh, night watchmen, either, even students studying for, for exams. And culturally as well, it's become quite associated in places like Kenya with, with quite a youth culture. So very, very popular amongst um, a few youth as well. Uh, so it, it kind of cuts across a lot of different social categories in, mm-hmm. in a place like, uh, like Kenya. And in most of these countries, primarily used still by men and relatively infrequently by women generally speaking that that does seem seem to be the case uh but but there is is consumption by um by women and again the proportions are probably higher in places like uh, like yemen um djibouti places like this and in somewhere somewhere like kenya where mostly it's seen as more a male a male pursuit mm-hmm and listen, for those listeners who have a poor sense of geography, it's useful to pull out a map at some point. But basically, the Horn of Africa is that kind of northeastern part of of Africa, sort of below Egypt and Sudan, and then sort of running down the eastern uh, eastern side of Africa, and then just directly across from Yemen and Saudi Arabia. And in fact, the use even extends into the neighboring regions of Saudi Arabia as well, as I realized when I was doing the research um, on this. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, Yemen's got a population of 30 million. But if consumption there, I mean, that could be what, I mean, that's probably where the highest percentage of the population lives. So it's quite likely you have many, many millions of people, uh, you know, in Yemen. Somalia's got 16 million people. So presumably you got a few million there. Kenya's got 53 million population. Um, so even a small percentage there is going to add up. And Ethiopia, you know, is the second most populous country in Africa after Nigeria over 100 million people. So I'm guessing that it must be in the tens of millions in addition to the emigrate communities living in Europe and Australia and the UK, Canada and elsewhere around the world. I mean, does that seem like a reasonable estimate? That, that seems like a really, really reasonable way to, uh, to estimate it. And I think the, the other sense of the scale is how much production has boomed in places like Ethiopia and, and Kenya as well. 
um, even moving beyond kind of traditional communities that are associated with its uh, consumption and moving beyond places where it was usually associated as a, an item of cultivation as well. Um, so I think from that, you can certainly get a, get a sense of growing numbers of people uh, chewing uh, chewing cat because, you know, there, there wouldn't be the, the re- this real growth in cultivation and trade if, a, if, if it weren't for increasing demand alongside that. I see. And so the problem you have is most of it then is growing in Kenya and growing in Ethiopia. Does that mean that, that Yemen and uh, Somalia and some of the other places are mostly importing the stuff that they chew? Uh, Somalia mostly imports, but Yemen does, it does produce a, a lot of its own, its own cat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one interesting thing about cot is that the key ingredient, right, the cathinone, you know, what the equivalent to cocaine and coca or THC in cannabis, it actually degrades very quickly once the leaves are picked. Um, and I saw one of the articles I think you wrote was called The Need for Speed. So just talk about that and the implications of that. That's right. Well, it very much does have a, a real, real implications for the way the trade is is conducted in in cat, and especially in terms of the transportation. So, as you say, uh, cathinone is generally thought of as as degrading quite rapidly into this other compound, the cabine, um, which is a lot less potent. So there is this idea that um, because of this, consumers really do want to get their cat as fresh as possible to uh, uh, to consume and get the most effects from the uh, the substance. I think that needs to be nuanced a little bit because um, I think a lot a lot of the reason why consumers prefer fresh cat is it it, it just is much more pleasant to chew, you know, rather mm-hmm. than cat that's uh, dried a little bit as as well. And I think some research shows that it's. Um, this compound it can be more or less stable in some varieties of cat as well. So it's, I think, quite uh, quite um, interesting pharmacologically there. But there's certainly this idea that there's this need for speed, you know, that um, there is this sense that people want, want the freshest uh, cat uh, possible. Um, and the implications in places like Kenya r- really are very much about how fast the, the trade has to operate. Um, because especially where where it's produced in Kenya is a region called uh, Meru Meru County, which is just northeast of uh, Mount Kenya, and this is where most of the Kenyan uh, crop of uh, cat is is grown. And it's notorious if you're driving anywhere in that region that you'll be you'll be driving along and suddenly uh, you'll be pushed off a road by some uh, speeding truck with sacks of cat. And this is quite a common idea uh, quite a common trope about about the cat business uh, not just in Kenya but but throughout you know in Ethiopia as well the, these kind of trucks that speed on by and basically that that is to try and meet schedules um, especially nowadays in Kenya with the uh, trade that the export of Kenyan cat to Somalia um, so that that cat has to reach the airports in Nairobi uh, very very quickly you know to then be able to be um, loaded up onto planes to get to to Somalia. So any any delays in that process really can lead to um, an unsellable unsellable batch of uh, cat. Well, so let me ask you this though, because one of the news items I came across was a major bust. It was in Seattle, and 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 uh, the you know uh, customs authorities seized I think ten tons of cot on a boat coming into the Seattle port. You know, I mean, sending it by boat. So how does the stuff stay at all good if it's been on a boat coming from East Africa into Seattle? 
Uh, well, it's a, it's a very interesting development that that links to what's happened in the UK as well, uh, where I'm based. Um, and the UK, as you uh, probably are aware, finally banned a cat in 2014. So the UK was one of the last European countries to um, bring about a, a, a ban on on cat. And what you did find happened after the ban. So before the ban, tons of, of uh, fresh cat was coming from Kenya. Uh, mostly from Kenya, some from Ethiopia as well, practically daily uh, coming into Heathrow Airport um, uh, to then feed, you know, the wider wider demand in the in the UK. So th- this fresh cat was was coming in in vast quantities. But what seems to have happened since the ban is that there has been a shift to a, a dried form of cat. Uh, it's called grabber. Um, it seems mm. to be the, the name that a lot of people uh, know it know it by in the in the UK and elsewhere. And it's yeah, it's quite interesting with these ideas about its pharmacology, about how uh, unstable cavinone seems to seems to be. Yet consumers still seem to say, or consumers that I've spoken to who have tried this dried cat, they still seem to suggest that it is actually quite uh, quite potent. Um, and uh, to to be honest, the, the pharmacological research I don't think has been done yet to uh, to really see what's going on there. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. 
Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I came across a, a funny story, I mean, and this may have been before this Graba version you're talking about came around, but it involves somebody getting busted some years ago in the U.S., but the person who arrested him sort of took their time in processing it. And, and so the person who'd gotten busted with the cot said he wanted to have it chemically analyzed. And what had happened was that the cathinone in the cot had already degraded to the point that it was no longer testing positive for that. And so if it had still been testing positive, he would have been busted for, you know, selling or importing a drug that was essentially a Schedule One drug in the United States, you know, like, like heroin or, or, or psychedelics or, or a range of other things. But because the cathinone had degraded, it was now just the, uh, the caffeine, which is only a Schedule Four substance. So therefore, I think he almost got, he just got off with a, sl- a slap on the wrist. Um, so I wonder if that's going to change now with this new graba you're talking about. Quite, quite possibly, but it's, um, but there still is, there still is demand for the for the fresh cats, and it, it kind of links again to that that need for speed, sort of pulling it out a little bit, a little bit more broadly as well, with uh, even like the Drug Enforcement Administration uh, officers and customs agents in places like the US, you know, being told like if if you do get a seizure of cat, uh, you've got to get it to the lab for testing as as, as quickly as possible. Uh, otherwise, you know, the um, yeah, like you say, cavinone, a Schedule One substance, it will degrade into this caffeine, so it would be a lesser a lesser charge as well, and not so not so good for statistics, I think, for for kind of customs agents or the DEA right. as right. well in terms of uh, you know if you can say it's a really interesting story that perhaps we can get onto in in a little little bit about the criminalization of cat around the around the world and the, the scheduling of it. Let's jump into that now. I mean, because I think, you know, for people to understand, I mean, I don't think cats part of the UN conventions. I mean, you know, the UN agencies haven't been particularly friendly, but and it's not something that's been criminalized since the early 20th century. I mean, the criminalizations that have happened around the world have been mostly in the, you know, the late 20th century or early 21st century, right? That's right. So with uh, with with cat, the the compounds on it are actually scheduled. Uh, so um, cabinone and caffeine again, these are compounds that that are scheduled according to uh, the conventions. But then there was a lot of leeway given as to whether the plant itself would then also be be regarded as, as kind of scheduled because of the compounds. So different countries took different uh, approaches to that. So for example, the, the UK for, for, for many years, um, so the isolated cavinone or caffeine would be restricted uh, compounds, but cat itself in plant form wasn't, uh, was not restricted. Um, whereas the, the US seems to have gone uh, down a different uh, a different road because cavinone and caffeine were themselves scheduled that uh, the US took the measure of uh, assuming that um, because of that that the the uh, United Nations intended that um, that uh, cat itself if it contained cavinone or if it contained caffeine should also be restricted uh, on those on those grounds but there, there was no scheduling of, of cat it, itself. 
Um, so th- this did did lead to a lot of uh, quite kind of quite interesting international situations in re- in regard to the legality of uh, of cat. Mm-hmm. Well, so when we look at the criminalizations that happen, right, it is these European countries and the U.S. and others, I guess, that begin criminalizing. But it actually goes back deeper than that, right? Because when you look, I mean, back to the colonial era in Africa, when the colonial overlords, you know, were concerned and would try to ban it. Um, and it also goes, this is also an interesting case where this just in, wasn't just Western elites banning something that they feared coming from abroad. A lot of the impetus in many places, both in the region as well as in Europe and maybe Canada or other places, seemed to be coming from people within the Somali community or from some of the emigrant communities. There's, they were sort of playing out, as I, if I understand what I've been reading from you and others, playing out you know, this, their own debate over how to look at cat. That's right. It's, um, and I think the, the terms that, that come out a, a lot in, in the way people write about cat, terms like ambivalence, terms like ambiguity, because um, there does tend to be so much ambivalence within particular communities about uh, the consumption of cat. But certainly, lots and lots of debates within within Islam about uh, whether whether cat is uh, forbidden or or permitted, whether it should be seen as forbidden as um, as haram or whether it should, could be seen as as halal. So these debates, there's actually quite a quite a long tradition in, especially in, in Yemen, of debates around um, uh, around cat and the, the the kind of the way Muslim scholars might might view it, whether as, as permitted or or not. You know, some seeing it as Kind of, you know, so you can consume it as long as it's not harming your uh, your day to day life or your link to your community. Whereas others are much more uh, restrictive on its uh, on its consumption. And then, yeah, a, kind of a lot of concern, especially often quite gendered forms of um, uh, concerns as well about uh, the, the the idea of cat as this very male uh, pastime. Um, where may, maybe taking the men away for long periods from the domestic sphere and contributing to the home, and the the idea of uh, spending uh, too much money on on this substance as well. Yeah, because it reminds me a bit because we've recently did an episode about the history of alcohol prohibition in the U.S. and there that was very much uh, a women's led movement as well to bring on uh, you know who led the temperance movement and then alcohol prohibition in the U.S. It was the same concerns around men spending their money on booze and not taking care of their families and claimed you know associations with violence and reckless behavior and all this and I think you would have the, some of the same debates around opium in many uh, traditionally opium using communities with you know with the with the the female heads of household upset with with what their husbands were doing and the waste of money going on. And then, of course, I think there's also sometimes the class-based conflict, right, with the elites kind of looking down their nose at the more working class folks and obviously the concern around young people getting into it. I mean, it seems like some of those debates that I read about in, in your writings, you know, are Around around the around the debates around what to do about cot are very similar to ones we've seen elsewhere around the world around other substances. Oh, very, very much so. Uh, a lot a lot of parallels um, uh, throughout those as as well. Uh, within Kenya, one thing I became particularly fascinated by was all the different varieties of cat that are sold, um, and you you do get cat being sold in Kenya that for all sorts of um, pockets you know you get the the very expensive uh, varieties of cat that come from the the oldest trees kind of kind of like with uh, vineyards you know like the best quality grapes coming from the oldest vines 
and it's a very very similar discourse about the the best quality cat coming from the oldest trees and this sort of cat can really fetch quite a quite a large amount uh, of money but then it, then you do get uh, le- lesser varieties as well you know which are the equivalent of the um maybe like the the sweepings of tea from the factory floor that might be sold as you know kind of low quality low quality tea so it was quite interesting always in in Kenya those divisions around around class so a lot of the Kenyan middle classes would often conflate all cat consumers as perhaps being quite um quite lowly people you know people working on the buses or um in public transport or the, these kind of things uh, whereas for those in the know, you know, cat it does straddle a lot of uh, different uh, different class groups as well. Um, so for those with insider knowledge about all these different types of varieties, you know, you you can see people who are, are buying a particular variety that is uh, very very expensive compared to you know someone who might just be buying the uh, the cheapest quality as well. Mm-hmm. Cat is not really criminalized in Europe, U.S. much of the world until the eighties. And then, as I understand it, what happens is, you know, Somalia is falling apart into a horrific civil war. Somalians are emigrating around the world, including to throughout Europe, the U.S. Uh, they're bringing the Ka tradition with them. And, you know, the Western governments don't really quite know how to respond at first. But my understanding is that part of what drives many of them in Scandinavia, uh, the U.K., probably some other countries, is that you have Somalians, Somali emigres, refugees, themselves pushing for the prohibition in these European and other Western countries, while others are saying, what are you doing? This is our indigenous product. This is something that's native to you know, our cultures. That's right. It, and it was quite, quite a pronounced uh, aspect of all the debates in the UK um, leading up to the ban in, in 2014. Um, and it, it is very, very interesting, actually, how it does link to those kind of diaspora, those kind of emigre uh, dynamics as well. Um, one kind of critical aspect of all this is a sense among some Somalis that that cat wasn't really an issue back in the in the home regions, but it's when it was displaced into the the diaspora, the emigre kind of context, that it became a became a problem. Partly the argument that um, you know there were more kind of cultural restraints around consumption in the in the uh, the home areas compared to uh, the diaspora uh, context, the the emigre context. But also one one kind of quite interesting dynamic is the uh, real sense of strong um, morality that a lot of uh, Somalis have in in the emigre context. That if if you do get the um, if you you do get the chance to to live in somewhere like London or or um, or Minneapolis or these kind of places that you should keep on supporting uh, families back in the in the home regions. So there's a lot of remittances that are that are sent back from Somalis in the emigre context um, back to uh, back to uh, Somalia to Somalis in Kenya and, and elsewhere. And I think with cat, there's there's quite a strong morality about it that you know if you get the chance to be in the in the uh, somewhere like London, you know, a place where you could could perhaps earn money, some of which could go back to to supporting family, but instead you kind of waste it uh, chewing uh, chewing cat in in London or or wherever. There there was kind of a, a very very strong sort of eth- ethical pushback against that. 
But all of that debate had its roots in similar debates going on in Yemen and in Kenya and Ethiopia and elsewhere, right? Because even there you had issues about, oh, this is not good and the men are just hanging around and they're spending money on cots instead of food and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like these uh, debates suddenly emerged when people got to, got to Europe or to the U.S. It's just that they became, I think, probably more exaggerated because they were dealing with a new cultural context and all the more worried about their kids and about employment. Oh, de- definitely. It's something that be- became intensified. Like you say, the- these debates have been going on for a long time. And debates not necessarily about the individual consumer as well, but about, you know, kind of the idea of whole whole countries as well. You know, very economistic kind of way of looking at life, like, you know, wasting working hours by chewing this substance. Or So you, you often, the way uh, places like Djibouti and uh, Yemen might be written about, like as if a whole society was kind of addicted to, to this substance and not, you know, the countries weren't developing as, as well as they might. You know, if only people stopped chewing cat, then you know, development would come in a more concrete, uh, concrete kind of form. And the same thing was true in the colonial era, right, where the colonial overseers tried to ban it at certain different certain times or ban it for certain groups and not others or try to license it or or all this kind of thing. That's right. And um, so some of my research as well, more more historical kind of archival research I've done was looking at, again at the, the Kenyan context, which is the one I'm, I'm uh, still most most familiar with. Um, but it was, yeah, very, very interesting colonial um, story about the uh, attempts to to prohibit this uh, this substance. And again, you can you can see from quite early on in the archives, you know, going back to around the 1920s, 1930s, uh, when the British authorities in in Kenya, the British colonial authorities, suddenly realised how much cat was being uh, consumed, how much was being grown, and how much was being traded. Because it suddenly came into their into their sight as you know a, a, a substance of interest, they hadn't really tracked it, and then all of a sudden they realised that this substance from places like the the uh, Meru region of Kenya it was travelling quite a quite large distances uh, and being sold you know as far away as Mombasa and places like this. And there were all these debates. So again, the, this idea of kind of ambivalence towards it and the ambiguities around it. So. Quite a few British officials didn't really see it being too problematic or, you know, they were kind of comparing it to things like tobacco and um, in moderation, it's it's not too bad a thing. But certain colonial officers really got a bee in their bonnet, um, really became quite involved in um, in, in wanting to uh, prohibit the, the substance, especially for, for certain parts of Kenya, like northern Kenya, there's a lot of concern that its consumption there was growing and it really was affecting a region that was quite a sensitive region as, as well politically because it was uh, a buffer zone between Kenya and Ethiopia and and um, Italian Somaliland as it as it then was. Yeah, I got a kick out of at one point you mentioned that, you know, the British didn't want to kind of get too tough on the Meru uh, Kenyans because they respected them and it was dynamic. It was dynamic part of their culture. But with respect to the Somalis who were living in Kenya, they if they wanted to get their cot at one point, they had a licensing scheme where they had to register as addicts in order to get access to cot. I mean, not unlike you had with some of the opium control systems in parts of Southeast and Southwest Asia um, at a roughly similar period in time, which is kind of humiliating to say, well, if you're Somali origin, you got to register an addict. If you're not Somali origin, then we're just going to tolerate it and, you know, either have it be legal or look the other way. That's right. And it, it was quite racialized, the, the idea that these sort of pastoralist people of northern Kenya, like Somalis, 
um, that consumption by them was something quite problematic. Whereas for these agricultural people like the Meru, you know, it it wasn't so um, seen as so problematic. So it was quite interesting how it how it became quite racialized. These kind of uh, concerns uh, about it by the by the British, but yes, it did it did lead to uh, incredible situations where you, you did have people to to go to go and get their supply of cat. At one point, they they would go and register with the district commissioner's office to uh, to go and get their their supply, and I think um, quite a few people did did take on the 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 kind of the the label of being an addict because then you did get a supply of cat given to you by uh, the British district uh, officers as well. So at this point now, it's fully legal, right? In Ethiopia, in Yemen, in Kenya, in Djibouti. That's right. Yes. And is it fully legal anywhere else? In different countries, it's it you can get quite a lot of legal ambiguities around it. So in somewhere like Uganda, where there there is quite a quite a growing consumption of uh, cat and cultivation of cat as well, but I think district different districts in Uganda um, do have like local kind of uh, local laws kind of restricting restricting cat as well. And in some places, it's never quite clear. You know, some some like for example Madagascar, it's often written about as being illegal, but then. Uh, also seems to be written about as being legal, and it's it can be quite hard to to cut through the the haze of this, because one one thing with cat is it does get so many so much legal ambiguity built up around it. So even in somewhere like Kenya, uh, where it is perfectly perfectly legal, but quite a lot of people see it as you know something um, to be regarded with suspicion and something quite. Uh, quite dubious in many ways, so it, it does it still takes on kind of an air of being something that, e- even if it it can be sold openly, that it's there's something not quite uh, not quite right there. There's a the other thing it became conflated with in the post 9/11 era with the war on terrorism as well, um, but there there was quite a bit of push in the in the US especially that cat uh, cat trading routes should be should be properly policed because there's this idea that uh, the likes of Al Qaeda and so forth uh, and Islamic uh, militant groups in some in Somalia were a lot of their funding uh, was coming from cat. This was the idea anyway. Well, there was probably some truth to it, right? I mean, it make it makes sense that groups that are involved in transnational criminality are looking to raise money any which way they can. That they're going to be getting some of their revenue from illicit drug sales. I mean, it's true have been true of most guerrilla movements and or not most, but many guerrilla movements and I think most you know terrorist organizations. Uh, that you know have a constant need for capital and that are constantly involved in you know trying to you know get guns from one place and then use the same planes to ship back drugs on the other. I think about the histories by Alfred J. McCoy about the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia, where he tra- where he tra- you know basically traces a lot of this history. So it would make sense that some of that was going on, although no doubt it was being exaggerated in the uh, Western media. Yes. Uh- what what you would find, I mean, certainly, I think Al Qaeda had no, uh, as far as I'm aware, any no links to to Qatar. Uh, but you certainly do find like groups like Al Shabab, uh, kind of militia group, uh, militant group in control of uh, still quite large swathes of uh, of Somalia. Um, that because Cat is still sold, they sometimes do try and ban it because the, these kind of um, militant Islam groups like Al Shabab. Uh, you, you know, of, often do uh, do see cat as something you know that should be forbidden. So sometimes there are attempts to ban it, but mostly you know they they do kind of tolerate it. 
and it, it is the case that it for for a lot of these groups uh, because cat is being sold in in that area it is something that they tax and so you know quite a bit of revenue is made for them but then everything's taxed you know like uh, all commodities like sugar mm-hmm. charcoal um so anything going through these kind of regions mm-hmm. but I, th- I think quite a bit of, of that concern especially uh, things i read in the us uh coming out of the us maybe around 2004 2005 that kind of era uh, a, a lot of the concerns about cat and funding terrorism really did seem to be based on very very little evidence it was more mm-hmm. more the case like you know cat is being sold all over the world you know it's a popular popular commodity it's it seems to be a drug and it's mostly associated with muslims uh we don't know where the money is going from cat therefore there's a high likelihood it's funding al-qaeda and it seemed uh, some quite tenuous logic was going on in 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 this kind of exaggeration right so people just weaving it into the kind of narco-terrorism war on drugs narrative that they would apply exactly. with cocaine and actually never really got attached to marijuana very much um now in terms of the enforcement in the emigrate communities i don't know if it was in your writings or in others where you know i was reading that in places like scandinavia it actually got pretty tough i mean they weren't just sh- doing a blind eye to this stuff they were using informants and random stops and arrests i mean there actually are some significant numbers of people you know uh, somali others who have been getting arrested and going to jail, at least. I, I th- is that right? Or is it really still just slap on the wrist type thing? It, it very, very much does depend on the on the context. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to look at, at somewhere like the UK in, in relation to, uh, to CAT, where, like I say, it was finally banned in, in 2014. But the, the ban, the, the way it's, it's been enforced, it's it, they kind of have a free strike system um, where you you know, first off, you just get a warning. Next time, maybe a, a fine, and then then finally, there might be um, more proceedings kind of brought a, brought against you. Again, I think it'd be interesting to do some research on on how many people are actually getting uh, busted with uh, with cat. But my my sense anyway is that it's very very low down any um, priorities for for police forces. You know whose funding is um, is generally quite uh, quite marginal at the at the best of time. But at the same time, you had media. Um, you know, I mean, I saw it came across one thing like back in two thousand and four, a relatively respected newspaper like the Guardian had ran a piece with a headline about Cot. Quote: This has the same effect as ecstasy and cocaine, and it's legal. Or before, you know, uh, starting this interview, I pulled up the, the drug fact sheet from the DEA's website. They asked the question, what's its effect on the mind? Cot, it says, can induce manic behavior with grandiose delusions, paranoia, nightmares, hallucinations, and hyperactivity. Chronic cat abuse can result in violence and suicidal depression. And that's a DEA fact sheet that's up there today. Right. So you see this kind of, you know, natural desire to kind of make cat sound as if it's indistinguishable from the purified form of cathinone or even worse. Right. And just fit it in with the, the same kind of uh, rhetoric that they use with respect to a bunch of other drugs, which have oftentimes much more powerful impact on, the, on human behavior. That's right. I, I think this kind of conflation goes on goes on so much with with all drugs, obviously. But we talked earlier about the labelling of cat as a as a drug and people kind of pushing back. So, for example, the Meru who produced a, a lot of the cat sold in Kenya and 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 beyond, a lot of the cat sold around the world. But they they very much do push back against that idea of cat as a drug. 
uh, like um, you know cocaine or or the like because they, you know they're aware of how how that 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 kind of idea is something that has restricted the the trade and led to these these kind of um, uh, prohibitions and 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 so forth. There's an interesting thing that when you look at substances that are coming, you know, if you look at kratom coming for kratom, as it's called in Southeast Asia, coming into the West, and it's being used, you know, oftentimes by, you know, not emigrate communities, but by people, you know, you know, a whole variety of people living, you know, who, you know, have long, you know, go back multi-generation, from multi-generations in the United States and other consuming countries. If you look at kava coming from South Pacific, once again, it's not just among South Pacific emigres. Um, uh, and I think that's true probably of a whole number of other sort of plant based psychoactive uh, substances. But with cot, I don't see anything about it being used outside the emigre communities. I don't hear anything about, you know, you know, white people or black people or, you know, or uh, Hispanic people, you know, that's is taking this up. It just seems to be so powerfully connected to the cultural tradition that it's not breaking out. But is there any evidence that that, that cot is being used outside the emigre communities? Uh, very, very little. I think maybe some whites in places like the UK, uh, you know, who had experience, perhaps they'd been to Yemen and chewed, chewed some cat there or or Kenya mm-hmm. and the like would would um, perhaps chew. But it, it is something that really seems so very different to most of the, the sort of mainstream drug culture in somewhere like the, the UK, uh, you know, which does tend to revolve around substances that, that kind of do give you a more intense feeling or a, a more a quicker effect. I think for a lot of people, the thought of uh, chewing a wad of cat, uh, chewing a wad of green uh, leaves for hours on end is not something that uh, is particularly appealing, you know, beyond the, those uh, communities where it's more uh, traditionally associated. And then I, th- I think one way that uh, producers in, in Kenya, people like the like the Meru involved in the, the cat industry, some of them have been quite forward thinking and realizing that the the thought of chewing this substance for hours on end is not necessarily going to get them but you know very very much broader appeal than it than it has at the moment so there has been development of uh things like kind of espresso shots of a cat kind of espresso mm. um pods that that have been developed where you know the water will will come through and uh, still i suppose that must probably be dried cat but still does apparently uh, produce um produce the effects that, that people are looking for. And the other interesting thing there in, in Kenya is that there's a company that does make um, what's called handas juice. And handas is the main Kenyan term for the effects of a cat. You know, if you're feeling handas, you're you're feeling under the influence of a cat. And there, there is a company selling kind of like the equivalent of energy drinks, but produced from, uh, from cat. So I think the, these are ways that people are trying to make it more appealing, you know, to a wider, wider population. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Parent. 
parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, there's also that thing where you and your colleague at, at Bristol, uh, Gernot, Gernot Kleinschnick, who I also met in Abuja at the African Drugs Conference in October, you know, put forward this notion of quasi-legality and seeing that as a useful frame with which to think about cot and cannabis and possibly other substances. So just elaborate on that idea of quasi-legality. Well, quasi-legality is our attempt really to get at the these kind of legal ambiguities that we see as revolving around substances like cat and also cannabis in particular in in various African and not just African elsewhere in the world uh, contexts. I'm really trying to get at the uh, so with, with for example cat uh, it always seemed like a substance that um, was often legal like for example in Kenya for um, for most of post-independence uh, Kenyan Kenyan history, cat has been legal. Yet until recently, uh, cat had been seen as something to be held in suspicion, you know, partly because the internationally it was seen as a substance to be uh, suspicious of. And, uh, you know, the substance that had been banned in various other, other parts of the world. And also the fact that cat, you know, it's kind of produced in these countries legally like Kenya and Ethiopia. But then when it travels into somewhere like Tanzania or um, or other places, it, it does, you know, then enter into a, an illegal, illegal kind of framing. Um, so really, we, we were trying to trying to get at that kind of that kind of ambiguity of, uh, you know, substances like cat, which aren't really, it's not very exactly clear kind of where they're, where they're, uh, le- what their legal, legal status is. And with cat, it was quite, 
quite quite interesting but it's often legal in places you know like ethiopia and, and kenya yet often seen as being something kind of illegal so according to the statute books it's legal yet according to the way a lot of people in society view it it's kind of is something that's conflated with these these other illegal illegal drugs and therefore it takes on those connotations of being illegal whereas interestingly with cannabis it often seems to be the the opposite you know cannabis in most african countries so it is this is changing now with various policy changes uh, in relation to to cannabis in some african countries uh, but cannabis often seemed to be the opposite almost it was um, usually by the statute books it also certainly by the statute books it was illegal yet often it was um, seen as you know socially uh, something that was very much tolerated or even even supported and i think the these kind of terms get get to that idea of um, the fact that what the statute books say you know doesn't necessarily take you very far into how how a society views these uh, these kind of uh, substances it's also interesting to see that when you're talking about cot being legal but sort of frowned upon i mean you tell the story about for example the government of kenya was generally kind of negative about cot until the point where the united kingdom criminalized it and they criminalized it over the recommendations of their own advisory committee on drugs which i think you had advised saying don't criminalize it and at that point kenya kind of jumps to the defense of cot and realizes it's got this economic value in parts of the country and realize it's a significant source of you know tax revenue and export revenue uh, for the government. So you see a kind of jumping forward to defend it. Yet on the other hand, um, I guess there are also issues. I mean, if you look with climate change, you look at a place like Yemen, you know, where issues around water and limited access to water and if large parts of agricultural land are actually being used to grow cot in places where you have a country in a major state of disruption, that could be problematic. Um, you would think uh, and I think Axel Klein makes this point in some of his writings that development agencies would in fact be embracing cot because it's an indigenously produced agricultural, you know, uh, product market, something that has international ramifications, especially especially within the region. Um, yet they seem to stay away from it, uh, where it's more lucrative than coffee and more reliable and lucrative than coffee and some other products that are usually exported to foreign markets and therefore provides a good, you know, constant source of revenue for farmers in the same way that those in Afghanistan benefit from opium and those in South America benefit from coca. It's a fascinating, it's a story that is unique in many respects compared to, I mean, similar in other places, but also it's got its own unique dynamics. That's right, and I think it, it does bring out quite a lot of ambigu wider ambiguities in the uh, the world of drugs more more generally. But but the, the yes, the the way it's kind of seen in terms of uh, development, you know, is something that that obviously there there has been quite a lot of concern, especially in places like Ethiopia, of uh, farmers, you know, kind of pulling up their coffee plants. You often hear of this, and and planting a cat instead. You know, often the idea being like sort of you know coffee giving it very very sort of limited funds and generally generally being marketed in particular ways where uh, the farmers don't have particularly much control over it whereas cat you know giving much more regular payments and re more regular harvests and and things like this as, as well as being a more more valuable uh, valuable crop but I, I was always um, amused uh, probably about a decade ago now reading an article that uh, somebody wrote an Irish uh, guy who runs a, a coffee coffee chain in uh, in Ireland and he had traveled to Ethiopia and he was horrified because in the, in the area where 
some of the coffee was coming from for his uh, his chain he was absolutely horrified to hear about these farmers uh, you know pulling up coffee plants to uh, to plant cat instead kind of but didn't quite see the contradiction of you know it's just uh, uh, these are both stimulants in a way but uh, you know no obviously there is like a hard and fast kind of economic logic to why these farmers are are switching to uh, or, or were at that time anyway switching to cat but what explains why it's more lucrative I mean, if it's not illegal usually what adds the price is the kind of prohibition tax the you know the way in which making something criminal makes it much more valuable for those people who produce it so long as they don't get caught by the law but in the case of cot right it's relatively easy to produce doesn't require a lot of care um yet it seems to sell for substantially more than most other agricultural products why is that that's a really good question and i, I, I think it, probably almost need to look at that in reverse like why why do um the likes of coffee and tea fetch uh, fetch so little and partly i think it is to do with the particularly in kenya the way the industry developed in relation to cats very much more an informal way of work way of operating the the trade and you know grew with like you were saying the kenyan government for a long time was very hands-off with cat they realized a lot of people depended on it so they weren't going to prohibit it and, and move in that direction but on the other hand they didn't want to be seen to be encouraging it for much of uh, of kenya's post-independence um, uh, history so really let the let the farmers get on with it and uh, i think the the way it developed in this this kind of way was was a lot more on the on the the terms of the um, people involved in the in its production and in its trade and yes it's you know there's always people who who make more money in the commodity chain of, of obviously any any agricultural commodity or any commodity more generally but but in in general i think not having that kind of corporate way of working that things like tea and coffee has um you know with these smallholder farmers really perhaps you know getting very very little for their for their product um mm-hmm. you know this is something that has um, helped cat um maintain its value Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, I realize you know, we didn't quite get deeply into the health aspects of cot, right? I mean, you know, uh, when you think about how relatively safe it is, what are the harms associated with it? I mean, what more can you tell us about, you know, the, the, the margins of risk and benefit from a health perspective about cot chewing? Yes. Oh, very important question. Yeah. In general, a lot, a lot of research on the, the kind of he- health harms people much more often i think in research on cat and other substances like this focus on harms don't they rather than the potential benefits of these um, these kind of substances you know the way the way research might be might be framed um but there certainly are issues associated with it um in particular for example um de- dental problems can be can be quite a big issue particularly with people who chew uh, cheaper varieties of cat which can be very bitter so a lot often they sweeten them with bubble gum or, or sugar, you know, and if you're not brushing your teeth kind of well after that, uh, that, that can lead to, to issues. So sort of dental problems can be, can be quite a, quite a, a big issue. And the, the, probably the most alarming thing you hear about in relation to cat, though, again, it's, you know, in terms of causality, as, as with all these things, it's very hard to, to pull apart, but you do hear people talk of a syndrome called cat psychosis, um of you know people having psychotic episodes after after consuming uh, cat um and there seems to be some evidence that cat may have played may have played a causal role in 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 the, in regard to this though often 
seems to have been much more the case among uh, people who had experienced, you know, high um, high degrees of trauma. You, you know, perhaps in the in the Somali civil war or you know, in kind of a refugee refugee process. Um, so, how you sort of disaggregate uh, uh, cat and issues of causality, you know, from these other wider wider factors that might make people more susceptible to um, to to psychosis is is quite a quite a difficult thing. So, Neil, from a policy perspective, I mean, from everything we've talked about and from all my reading and preparing for our discussion, it seems to me that if one were making a policy recommendation, one would be saying, don't criminalize this stuff. There's no reason for countries around the world to be criminalizing it. Um, and that the harms of criminalization probably exceed, you know, the benefits of criminalization, that the United Nations has been smart not to try to criminalize COD or include it in the, in the International Anti-Drug Conventions and that the UN agencies, the UNODC and the International Narcotics Control Board, the INCB, should, you know, just keep their hands off it and shut up. And that basically the risks of full legalization, even full global legalization, are pretty negligible given the relative sort of benefit-risk ratio of COD use. Would you agree? I, th- I think on, on the whole, yes. And it, it, it was quite a difficult issue, actually, in the, for example, in the UK context with the ban that came in in 2014, particularly as so much support for the ban was coming, especially uh, mostly from Somalis um, w- within the UK. It was quite quite a thing, you know, when the community themselves, uh, even people who did chew, a lot of them kind of argued that it should be banned, you know, this thing should be, uh, should be banned. So that that was a, an an aspect of the the debates that that is you know for 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 scholars and policymakers is is quite an interesting uh, you know or quite quite a difficult thing to to deal with in in some ways you know when it is coming from the the community themselves and my kind of perspective at the time of the UK ban was how like it was it was really an opportunity I thought for the UK government to try and bring in something you know some better policy to uh, towards cat so for example at the before cat was banned it uh, the British government was raising revenue on on cat imports um, and it you know seemed like potentially a, a way of um, a way of dealing with a lot of the issues that the communities um, were concerned about in relation to to cat you know and, and wider issues facing uh, communities like the Somalis in the UK that maybe some of that tax revenue could be uh, kind of hypothecated you know could have been put towards uh, efforts to to help those communities or or policies such as such as that you know that that wouldn't have been a been a ban because what what has effectively happened in the UK is that nobody's happy now I think other than the UK government which has kind of um, kicked the issue of cat into the into the long grass um but no, no, I'm going to I'm going to keep pushing you till you give me a straight answer here. I'm saying if somebody asks you, Neil Carrier, what should we do yeah. about cash? Should this stuff simply be legal around the world? It's got no business being a prohibited substance anywhere. Would you say yes or would you say I don't know or no? I would I would generally say yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good, good, to, good to push. I think where the sensitivities come, though, because it, it, it are those sensitivities of, the, you know, so much of the calls for it to be banned, 
coming from the communities themselves, you see. But as you say, I mean, we, there's been such a history around the world where oftentimes, you know, people from indigenous communities or others will call for prohibitions, you know, not foreseeing all the ways in which those prohibitions will have radically negative consequences for their communities. So, you know, my view has been it's kind of incumbent on anybody who looks at this from both a policy perspective and a human rights perspective, you know, to look at it clearly and speak clearly, even if people from within those communities are divided about what the policy should be. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a very fair point. Well, I'll tell you, I want to thank you ever so much for having this conversation about COT with me and my listeners on Psychoactive. As I said, I think it may be the first podcast ever, although maybe I miss one, on this issue of COT. Uh, and hopefully uh, we see policy. I mean, policy doesn't seem to be changing very much anywhere in the world right now, but it, you know, it seems like it's not doing too much harm, although it could be better. But, Neil, but thank you very it's... much and best of luck. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I was just going to make one final point that it's quite interesting as well, well, you know, when we think about how drug policy does seem to be in flux quite a bit, thick substances are going in different directions. You know, cannabis around the world seeming to become more liberalised in uh, various parts of the world, whereas cat, you know, something most people I think would see as a milder substance, but, you know, it's becoming more and more illegal around the world. So so I, th- I think cat and cannabis do, do um, yeah, speak to a lot of the ambiguities of it when you put those into to comparison. Well, with that, Neil, I want to thank you ever so much for having this conversation with me and my listeners on Psychoactive. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Dennis McKenna, the famed ethnobotanist and anthropologist whose book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, will soon be re-released. Well, science fiction was a huge influence on us, you know, and it cultivated a fascination with the esoteric and the strange, you know. I mean, for uh, our, from our perspective, you know, we were weird, and the weirder the better, <laughs> you know? And so when psychedelics came along, I think that we viewed it not from a context of uh, uh, spirituality or or indigenous practices or anything like that. I mean, we, we discovered that later, but originally the idea was that hey, these are other dimensions. Psychedelics can take you to other dimensions. And we thought of that quite literally. 
Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.